originally I was going to start, got some communion cups up here, um, originally I was going to start on kind of an upbeat note, and, um, and this morning about four o'clock in, in the morning I was, I was thinking through what I was going to say and praying, and I realized, you know, um, a, a light-hearted approach to this message is so out of character with the heart of the message, um, so I scrapped it completely. And I'm going to start on, on, a, on a bit of a, more of a serious tone, and I hope that's okay, because I, I really believe in the end that this message is, um, is a serious look into the soul of God's people and the struggles that we often have um, in our souls as God's people. Um, and uh, what, what God led me to begin with was a, was a letter that I received my junior year of college. I went to a, a, a conservative Christian college. I went from, my last day in the military was my first day of college at a conservative place. And uh, I went through three years, and I had made this friend, um, uh, very bright, um, talented singer, and we, we developed a friendship and uh, developed a sense of trust. And so my junior year, he was a senior, and um, a year older than me, and he, uh, he handed me this, this envelope that was packed with a handwritten four or five page um, letter. And I didn't think much of it at the time um, until I read it. And I, I was in my dorm room and I opened it and I read it. And, and it was a confession. It was a confession of his, I'm just going to be out there with this, it was a confession of his attraction for men. That is, a, uh, he struggled with homosexual tendencies and desires. And um, it took a lot for him to write these four or five pages to me to confess something that would, um, in the college environment that I would be in, would be like putting a, um, if everybody knew, it would be like putting a scarlet letter on somebody. And I could sense in, the, in his letter and confessing to me that he wishes and wanted to somehow reach in and pull out that attraction, but couldn't do it and found himself just piled under layers and layers and layers of feelings of guilt. And can I possibly be a Christian and feel this way and have these unnatural attractions? Now, I'd like to say that um, I handled it well. I was kind, and I, I, I wasn't surprised. I know better than that. I mean, I've been around. You're in the Marine Corps, you've been around. Though that particular issue wasn't really a Marine Corps experience that I had. Um, but, I, you know, honestly, looking back, um, I don't think I had the spiritual bandwidth to really help my brother. And I know he was a brother. I know he's a believer in Christ. Um, that my, my understanding of the scripture was somewhat narrow. Um, that my understanding of the dimensions and the various dimensions of how sin works and how ugly it is in so many different forms was very, very limited. And my understanding of grace was so brittle that I, I really wasn't in a position to, to help him. Um, but I, I believe one of the reasons he, 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 he labored uh, under this pile of guilt was two primary things. One was a, a wrong definition of, of what repentance is. And the second one, of course, is a church culture that likes to be selective in the sins that it emphasizes. And uh, there are certain sins which, if you're a part of, you almost feel like you're the pariah. You, don't, you can't possibly be saved if you struggle in certain ways, which, you know what, that's a bunch of junk. So what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the issue of how does a Christian 
deal with their sin. We all have it. We all know it. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a combination of our unique fallenness um, combined with our personality, twisted together with family environment and some sins that have been committed against us. In my friend's case, he had a Christian family that was on the outside looked perfectly Christian, but on the inside was very twisted. And that was a part of the shaping of his, his life. And each one of us, based upon personality type, historical shaping, and our own fallenness, um, have our own sins and our own struggles, our own unique flavor, if you will, of, of, of how sin works out in our lives. The question is, how do we struggle with it? Everybody here struggles. Do we struggle with it in a sense of just feeling constantly under layer upon layer upon layer of guilt because we seem to just keep struggling with some of the same internal drives or, or impulses toward vanity or jealousy or comparing yourself to others and feeling um, deeply insecure or arrogance, pride? I mean, we struggle in different ways with unique combinations of those very things. And to my knowledge, no one actually gets to the end of life perfect which means our whole life is going to be struggling with these things. So how do we deal with sin in our lives as it continues to make its presence known as we walk the Christian life? And that brings me to this word that the Bible uses of how the Christian, it's part of how the Christian is supposed to be dealing with sin. It's the word repentance. Uh, it's an old word. Some people, when think of repentance, they think of, you know, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or it's a Puritan word, but it's really not. It just is a word that talks about a change in life, and in particular, a change in life in relationship to our sin. Now, most of the time when we think of repenting, we think of the beginning of the Christian life, when you used to do all kinds of bad things, and then you came to Christ, and you don't do them anymore. That's the repentance part, and in one sense, that's true. Typically, if a person is, 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 um, has a life-changing encounter with the, with the love of God in Jesus Christ and know that he paid for our sin and so forth, there's a, there's a change that takes place almost immediately. But in another sense, repentance is a lifelong endeavor for the Christian because we don't arrive this side of heaven or death. So looked at in another way, repentance is a continual thing through the Christian life. It just begins when the Christian life begins, but it continues as, as we uh, proceed through life and as God strips layer upon layer uh, of sin in our lives and, and deals with us and changes us and lovingly transforms us. So what I want to investigate this morning, which for me has been a personal discovery, is um, what does it mean to repent? Like, what really does it mean and what does it not mean? Because I, as I said, I believe one of the things that tripped my, my brother up and what kept him feeling so guilty and outside wasn't just the cultural stuff, but it was a wrong definition of what constitutes true biblical repentance. So I, I want to give to you um, what is not new for me, I'm not the originator of it. This, is, this comes from centuries and centuries of Christian reflection on the Bible as to what it teaches on reflection. And it consists of three basic things. This is what constitutes repentance. And the last part in particular is what we really need to get our heads around. Um, the first thing is repentance consists of a change of mind. Change of mind. Now, 
I forgot something that I'm going to hear back up. You might say, how does this deal with the prodigal son story? Well, because um, there's no word repentance in, in the prodigal son story. But the prodigal son parable is set within a group of three in Luke 15. The first one is about a missing sheep. The second one, a missing coin. And the third one, a missing son. They go together. Um, the first one is about the recovery of the one lost sheep. The second one, the recovery of the lost coin. And the third one, the recovery of the lost son. And in the first two parables, when Jesus explains what happens, he uses the word repent, repent, repent. In other words, these parables are about repentance. So he says, Luke 15, 7, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, there's the word, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's after the finding of the one sheep. Um, then at the end of the parable, talking about the single coin that the, the woman goes after, he says this, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the first two parables in these, this grouping has to do with repentance. So naturally, so would the third. The prodigal son is an example of, or an expression of, or a living uh, description of, of repentance, of returning. So that's why we come to this particular, um, this particular parable. We've already discovered or looked at two paths of life that are sinful. One is the, the pursuit of pleasure, and the other is the pursuit of self-righteous performance. And those are both wrong directions. That's the younger son who goes off and does everything he can imagine. The older son who stays at home and looks good on the outside but has a very self-righteous and dark heart. So the question now, again, what is repentance? If that's so crucial to this story. One, a change of mind. Now, when I'm stating it that way, a change of mind that really is framed more for the person who isn't a believer who becomes a believer, that they have to change. Like, this is wrong. I once thought it was right, but now I believe it's wrong. Perhaps for the Christian, it should be framed something a bit more like this, and that is an affirmation that, of the sinfulness of sin. That is to say... The first step for restoration and first step of repentance really is to simply acknowledge and affirm, hey, this is wrong. If there's no acknowledgement that this is wrong, then there will be no change. Uh, that comes to light in the story of the, of the prodigal. They're right in the middle. Remember, he wandered away with his dad's inheritance, wild living, and then he finds himself with nothing and desiring to eat what pigs are eating. And he, it says there, it says that he came to his senses. In other words, he came to his right mind. He came to the realization, what in the world am I doing? This path that I once thought so great has led me here. And he realizes at this point he is in a bad place and wants to make a shift. Um, that's, of course, borne out a little bit later in the story when he says, I, I have, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. He recognizes what he did was wrong. And it's not just what he did was wrong. It was a wrong path to begin with. That his heart was wrong. So the first step, and crucial to repentance, is making sure that we acknowledge and know and are convinced of the sinfulness of sin. We have to know it's wrong. If we don't know it's wrong, then it won't be repented of, and there is no repentance. Now, that's an extremely important truth 
given our current context, as I mentioned in the first message, where people want to redefine or justify um, morality on the basis of genetics, on the basis of past history, or the basis of a strong, unnatural desire that you might have. But important to repentance is acknowledging that right is right and wrong is wrong. We have to affirm the sinfulness of sin. Regardless of whether we're living it out or not, we have to still say that is sin. The action is sin. The heart behind it is sin. It is wrong. It reminds me a little bit of, of um, the movie that everybody sees at Christmas time. Some of you have read the book. Uh, all of you, I think, have seen the movie of Scrooge, you know, a Christmas uh, carol written by Charles Dickens. That's an interesting story because um, what causes the change in his life is he's brought face to face with an intellectual understanding of how evil his life is. I mean, that's what, that's what happens, right? Past, present, future, ghost of Christmas past, and the ghost of Christmas present, and then future. And he, t- there's, he's, he gets this... Uh, um, front row seat on what his life really looks like and where it goes. Um, his ungrateful, miserly, self-centered, um, condescending path of life ends, by the time you get to the end of the book, uh, in the cemetery, utterly isolated and before a gravestone. That, of course, is where all sin leads. And at this point, coming to grips with the path of his life and the wrongness of his life and how it's hurt people, and how self-destructive it is, how isolating it is, how he sees himself completely alone. Nobody cares that he's died. Then, a change is initiated. And I love the statement he makes when he's, he's clutching onto the, 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 the spirit of Christmas future, and he's clutching onto his robe, and he says, Hear me, I'm not the man I was. In other words, By nature of looking and seeing who I was in the path of my life going down such an isolationist and self-destructive path, I'm not who I used to be now that I've seen what I see. This prodigal son. And then it goes on to say here, um, at the very end, he says, Why show me this if I am past all hope? Why show me all of this, this, this... badness and this ending in absolute isolation, loneliness, and self-destruction if there's no hope. I love that last part because it kind of brings out the redemptive purpose of why God reveals sin to us. God doesn't reveal sin to his people to damn them. He reveals who we really are so that we can sense our need for him. And in turn, we can see how much he loves us to fill that need. And so that part of that seeing and understanding, wow, this really is a self-destructive way of living my life. And agreeing that this is wrong. That there is, in that, the beginning of change. So if a person is unwilling to acknowledge that it's wrong, then they're not going to repent. The older brother is a perfect example. He couldn't see his sin, couldn't acknowledge that he was being self-righteous. And as a result, he was on the outside of the father's presence. Younger son, of course, sees it, knows it, affirms the wrongness of my life, and as a result, he changes. So the first part of repentance is a change of mind or an affirmation of the sinfulness of sin. It's wrong. Where I'm at is wrong, my heart's wrong, and my actions are wrong. Second thing 
that repentance is also a change of heart. Here we're talking about the emotional aspect. The first one was intellectual. Uh, the second one has to do with our, our emotional state. It's when a person really comes to grips with the fact that what I'm, who I am is going the wrong direction and chasing the wrong things, there is a sense in true repentance of brokenness or grief or remorse, a sadness over what's happened. Um, the person who brings this out most clearly is the Apostle Paul, speaking of, of, of the nature of repentance and what produces repentance. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see, the, the grieving led to the change. Um, for you felt, feeling, emotional, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance. So there's a grief that's godly um, that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It's interesting. There's a kind of grieving that leads to a salvation without regretting. But, on the other hand, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, when people screw up in life... Um, I won't say everybody, but there is a sense of, of sadness when we know we've hurt somebody or when we've done something wrong. Um, whether you're a believer or non-believer, whether you're a Christian or you're part of any other religion, um, that people genuinely feel a sense of guilt about their sin, a sense of sadness. But he's telling us there's a kind of grief here that works towards salvation without regret and a grief that leads to death. In other words, it's possible to feel bad about your sin for all the wrong reasons. Um, which leads to a question, what's the difference? And how do I know if I'm feeling wrong for the right reasons? And I think it comes down to why are you grieving? Why are you saddened? Why, why is there a sense of uh, inward remorse about it? And if the answer to that, what causes it, is outside of your heart. In other words, what really troubles me and makes me feel remorseful is the fact that I have public shame now because people know? Well, that's a guilt pressured from outside. Or if I'm afraid of the consequences and so I, 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 I repent because I'm afraid of what might happen in the future or of the consequences themselves cause repentance. Well, those are all outside pressures for you to feel sad, but you're sad because of external things, not because of the nature of sin itself. That self-awareness that I am broken and a mourning over the fact that, wow, I lied because I have a lying heart and I hate a lying heart. I hate duplicity in other people and I hate it in me. There's a brokenness over sin itself. Regardless of who's watching or if it comes out on the headlines of a, a newspaper or whether it, it's on the news, it's, there's still the sense of brokenness even if no one else is watching or there are no consequences. And at the heart, I think, of biblical repentance is a close encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's there that we see the deepest, most painful effects of what our sin does, not to other people, but to the heart of God himself. I don't know how your family works, um, but I think this is pretty general across the board, that um, when your kids wander off and they start experimenting with drugs, 
and start going down a wrong path. They may feel some pain, but I know from first-hand, second-hand experience, not first-hand yet. Uh, let's just strike yet from the record right there. <laughs> um, that I've watched parents agonize over their children in ways the children didn't even agonize. And the fact of the matter is, is, is the way the Bible describes our Father in heaven is he created the world out of love. And he gave us, when he created us, he gave us the distinctive blessing of, of sharing his image in a way that calls forth a love in him like a father has for a son made in the image of the father. And so when God the Father sees his people hurt themselves, the one who is most affected is the heart of the Father himself. And a person who believes that God loves and generously gives so much every day to people who never even so much as pray to him, to know that it hurt enough that he had himself to come and bear the weight of our mistakes and, 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 and die and be crushed and have the, 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 the iniquities of us all laid on him. And so that's the beauty of, I think, part of why the gospel is so powerful is because you hear that, wow, God, you came to me while I was wandering and lost and I didn't deserve it, but you came to me anyway and, and you bore my shame and my sorrow. And you know what that does? It completely humbles you and, and, and shows you the depth of your sin, but also at the same time, the enormity of his grace and his love that he would even do such a thing. And that's what I think produces in the end a salvation without regret. It's just the, the humble but joyful sweet recognition that, wow, I am broken, but you loved me and you paid for my brokenness so that I could be healed. There is a humbling that takes place and a, and a, and a sadness, but it's not a sadness without gratitude. It's a grieving, but it's not a grieving without a sense of joy because you know that God's love overcame your sin. I really believe that the kindness of God moves us to repent in the way that if someone gives something to you that truly is sacrificial that you don't deserve, there is a sense of humbling um, and brokenness that comes with it. So it's, a, it's, it's also the heart that's involved. Um, for it to be true repentance... There must be a change of mind and a change of heart. There must be an intellectual affirmation. This is wrong. And there must be an emotional brokenness that I have hurt somebody who loves me more than I'll ever know, but he loves me anyway. And then the third part, and this is a part we have to pay close attention to. The third part of repentance, which brings repentance to its completion, is a change of direction. This has not to do with the intellect or with the, the emotion, but has to do with the will or volition. That is, there's a change of will, a resolve to now move in a different direction in life. That, too, comes out in the prodigal son's story. When he comes to his senses, that is, he regains his understanding of right and wrong, he says, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son and so forth. But there's a decision moment at that point that I am going to move in a different direction. 
At the beginning of the story, he was uh, going opposite his father. And then at this point in the story, he's turning around, and now he's heading back towards his father. His will, his mind, his decision, his commitment is to head back. That is the third part, or the completion, completion of this thing called repentance, is there is this commitment of resolve of will to move in the opposite direction. Where there is only the first two, where you simply acknowledge it's sinful, and you may feel a sense of brokenness, but there's no shift in will, there is no repentance. You can't go back to the Father and away from the Father at the same time. You can't go east and you can't go west at the same time. You can't go up and you can't go down at the same time. They're two completely different directions. And what he does here is he shifts his will back to the Father. He now decides he's heading back to the Father. It's a resolve. Now, what's the, what's, what's the, what's the important part uh, about this that I want to bring out that I think we often get wrong? And let me do it by way of question. Does there have to be an act for repentance to be real? Does there have to be a performance of repentance in order for repentance to be genuine? Very important question. I think many of us have been trained, uh, in what, for whatever reasons, to think that for repentance to be true repentance and therefore saving, there has to be an action of repentance connected to it. So how would you answer that question? Does there have to be an action of repentance in order for repentance to be genuine? Remembering, of course, that repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. And both together are necessary for saving or salvation. So uh, when the crowds come to Peter in chapter 2 and they say, what must we do? He says, repent. Um... John the Baptist, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God's saving reign now through Jesus Christ. He, um, he says, repent and believe. Those are two sides of the same thing. So are we going to define repentance as, okay, here's this issue of the heart, the mind, the heart, and a will, but you also need an act in order for it to be saving. I've struggled with this question a lot. Because if you say yes, then you put yourself in a place of perpetual insecurity. How do you know if you've repented enough? I mean, at the beginning of the Christian life, oftentimes, as I said, there's this massive change. A person leaves behind. Let's say it's the promiscuous life and, 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 and it adopts a life of... of of either celibacy or of monogamy, you know? And there's a big change. The actions have changed. But you know what? That person's still going to struggle with lust, aren't they? And are they going to struggle perfectly against it? No, they're not going to. So the same impulse that once drove them to do these kind of explosive sins still remains in the heart. And as we all know, those impulses cause us from time to time to stumble. So if we have to act out our repentance in order for it to be repentance, then we're left with the question, how 
if I'm still struggling with this sin after 10 years, albeit there's been a change, how much change is necessary for me to be saved? And we throw ourselves right back into the performance wagon of trying to measure up again. And that is outside the center of the gospel truth of grace. Or look at it a different way. If repentance is the flip side of faith, and that's pretty universally acknowledged, would we want to say that for faith to be saving, we have to also perform? We have to act righteous. We wouldn't want to say that. Because then you're left with the question, how, how much do I have to do on top of my faith for God to love me and approve of me and, and accept me? You're always in a state of doubt, especially in times of, of when you've failed or stumbled, asking the question, how can I be a Christian? It's important. We, for centuries, the church has believed that we are saved on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone. It's not faith plus works, faith plus my righteousness, faith plus my performance. You add that and you distort the whole gospel. And you entangle and enslave people. So if we adopt a faith alone, without works, it seems to me logical and theological that we must also adopt a repentance alone. Otherwise, you drag performance right back into it. And I'll tell you, I have met many Christians. By the way, I, this is not a, uh, this doesn't originate with me. Just to put a little um, outside influence in this. This is Wayne Grudem. Many of you have a systematic theology. And and he says what everybody else says. That we cannot say that someone has to actually live that changed life over a period of time before repentance can be genuine. Or else repentance would be turned into a kind of obedience that we could do to merit salvation for ourselves. Now I'm not saying, just so we're clear, that true repentance doesn't produce change. If it's real, it will produce a change. And if you look over a person's life and there is no overarching change, well, then you've got to go back and question, was the repentance real? Because there's absolutely no fruit to show from it. But here's the thing. Even there, we have to be careful because isn't repentance a lifelong thing? And while some of the immediate big explosive sins that were a part of your life before you came to Jesus, aren't the seeds and the impulses that caused that to happen still there? I, I'll tell you, it was an, a kind of an eye-opening experience. We had a men's ministry meeting here, and um, what, there was a lot of guys that gathered. This is several years ago, and, and this man in his 90s, mid-90s, who fought in World War II, um, stormed the beaches of Normandy, um, he came and he talked, and we just had a chance to ask him honest questions. And again, there was a whole bunch of guys there, so this is public information. But, but I raised my hand. I said, here's a guy in his 90s, man. If anybody has it together and has arrived, it's got to be him. So I said, hey, for the sake of the guys here, do you still struggle with lust? And he said what I knew he'd say. I said, yes. You should have heard the sighs of all the guys, you know, in the room like, oh, are you kidding me? Now, truth be told, he said, you know, through his life, he's managed to, by the grace of God, see that um, diminish, as it should. But that will be a lifelong issue for many men, some women. Um, Vanity, 
um, the, the desire to, to look good and have that govern your life and your moods and your, your, your joy, um, that will be something that uh, many men and women will struggle with. We will struggle with to the end of our, our life. Anger. Um, I haven't perfectly captured or held down my anger at all times. My, my kids will tell you that. Um, I'm, I'm going to struggle with that until the day I die. My friend who struggles with homosexuality, I don't know that God is going to just rip out that desire. He may. The world would say, hey, you know what? Just continue down that path because if that's what you want, do it. But if repentance is, you know what? We all struggle with this deep seeds of sin in our heart, but what repentance is isn't the complete absence of the impulse of sin, which isn't going to happen in this life. But it's agreeing that it's still wrong, that I'm still broken by it when I come to the cross, but my will, I am set on Christ. And I'm going to continue going down that road no matter how many times I stumble and fall. That is where I'm headed. If that constitutes repentance and not the repentance plus performance, then a person like my friend can know, you know, I'm still the Lord's. I struggle, and I pray against this thing, and sometimes I slip up in my thought life, but I know that I'm his because this is what the nature and the definition of repentance is. You see, if you adopt a performance addition to repentance, then we're all going to be in a world of hurt. And I, as I said, I've, I've held that definition before, and when you find yourself stumbling, you're just like, man, I can't believe that. Like, how can I be a Christian? I mean, I, I, I felt that way 10 years ago. Why am I still struggling with it? And God must not love me. And I think it's because we've adopted a wrong understanding of both faith and repentance. But the important thing is just, hey, it's still wrong. I'm broken by it. I come to the cross. I confess it. Trust that Jesus has paid for it. And, um, and then I set my eyes on Christ. That's what that, I want to go home. As a prodigal son, I set my eyes on the Father. I want to go home. Now, I think that message has kind of two, two edges to it. Um, one edge is, is more for the people who come to church um, but don't really want to get that close to the Lord. And the other one is for the believer who really struggles with a sensitive conscience. The one edge is for, for people who, they want religion and they want forgiveness from Jesus, but they still want to continue down the wrong road. And they do so willfully and without a sense like, well, this is wrong. Um, church today is full of people like that, of unrepentant Christians. And I think to you, the, the plea would be from this, listen, just as the older brother was outside the presence of his father because he refused to repent. So if there's a refusal to acknowledge wrong and be broken by it and set your will back towards Christ, then you're still on the outside. You can't walk east and west at the same time. You have to decide where you're going to walk. The Lord says repent. Confess that it's wrong. Be broken by it. I, I paid the debt for you. And then set your will towards me. But there's another group in here. I know because I, I know many of you, some of you, that have really sensitive consciences. And you struggle with, with your heart. 
And sometimes you stumble and sometimes you fall. But you really do love the Lord. And you know he loves you. And the spirit is in your life. And I believe that this message can also set you free. Because listen to this. Now, some are going to misunderstand what I say and use it as a license for sin, but I pray that those who have the Spirit in them will hear it in the right way. For those who are true believers here who know God, love God, but really deeply struggle with the fact that you still struggle with sin, I think the Lord's basically say, listen, my love is big enough that you're free to make mistakes. And coming to know the Freedom to make mistakes within his love becomes a motive for obedience. That sounds paradoxical, but I just, to know, I want my kids to know, listen, you have freedom within my love to make mistakes. I'm not going to cast you out if you make mistakes. And doesn't our own parenting process say it takes years and years and years of mistakes as our kids grow? The Lord knows you're going to make mistakes. That the love of God is big enough for us to make mistakes and to fail. But when we realize we actually have that room to fail within the confines of his love, it doesn't make you want to sin more. It makes you want to sin less because his love is that big. So for those who have those ears and find yourself in that group, I just hope that you'll know, hey, you know what? My father loves me. I, I screw up sometimes as a child, but... But I love him. He loves me. And, and I'm going to continue to acknowledge the wrong and be broken. I'm going to set my will towards him. And, and I'll know that I'm his. And be secure in that love. So as you come to the table, which is a reminder of the love of God for sinners. Bread and cup. Body and blood of Jesus poured out because God loved us. Um, Ask yourself, have I really repented? Am I walking towards Christ? You shouldn't be taking it if, if you're not. And for those who really do love God but just struggle with your, your sin and you hate your sin as my friend did, come in the joy of knowing that it's covered. It's forgiven. And he's never going to leave you nor forsake you, not in the good times, not in the bad, not in the times that you stand, walk, or stumble. And enjoy what he's done for us. As I pray, if uh, the elders could come forward and, and, uh, and serve us. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. And I do believe that your kindness moves us to repentance and to know that your love is deep and wide, that it covers our failures. It walks through our failures with us. And just to allow those that are yours to stand in the freedom of being your children. And those who don't know you yet, Lord, may you just bring them and draw them and um, bring them to a place of repentance, we pray. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for the supreme sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And we pray this in his name. Amen.